Have you ever been in an earthquake? It's a different experience than anything else. Everything around you starts shaking. You feel like you have absolutely no control over what is happening, which of course is accurate because you don't have any control over it. God in His Word, when He gave what we know today as the Ten Commandments, said that He would shake the people. And He did when He gave those Ten Commandments. There was lightning, there was thunder, there was literally a shaking of the earth, there was a trumpet sound, they got louder and louder as they got closer to the Lord. And God shook the people to impress upon them His power and His greatness. And God says that He will shake this earth again. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. As you turn there, I want to review where we were a few weeks ago when we were together in this passage of Scripture. The writer of Hebrews says in the immediate verses prior to where we're going to dwell today, prior to verse 25, where we will be looking at the verses 25 through 29. But the Lord said that when he came to Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai was where God called his people to give them the Ten Commandments. And as I just described that scene, there was lightning, thunder, smoke. It was a scary scene. In fact, so much so that Moses said that he trembled in the presence of God. You couldn't even touch the mountain, for if you did, there was a good chance you or you would be struck dead. And God was trying to impress upon them, my law is serious stuff. And what I am saying and communicating to you is serious. And you need to listen and you need to obey. Now the writer goes on in these preceding verses from 20, verse 25 to talk about how we have been called not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion. Now he's using metaphor here because Mount Sinai represents the law it speaks of the holiness and power of God and God as judge and God as command giver. Mount Zion was a term used for the mountain range outside of Jerusalem. And on one of those ranges is what we call today Mount Calvary where Jesus died. And he says we have been called to Mount Zion. But he goes on to say that this Mount Zion is connected not only on this earth to what he did for us on the cross and in the resurrection, but he says we've also been called to this great congregation, he says, of the saints who have gone before us and to angels that are dressed, he says, in festive clothing. In other words, they are dressed and ready to worship the Lord. Now, as we saw two weeks ago, and this is important to understand in the metaphors that are used here in the imagery, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is this, where we in this life tend to look at life here on this earth and then after death, life in eternity in heaven. From the biblical perspective and from the perspective that he's giving here, there is no like dividing wall. It is just a continuum of existence for the believer. And that is we move from this life, continuing on a journey with the Lord into his presence. And so it begins on Mount Zion when we meet the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, but it continues in a life of worship to Him, and then we walk into His presence and worship Him with the saints through the ages and with the angels. Now, it also says that we encounter forgiveness. 
In the verse that precedes where we're going to look today, verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 12, it says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and this is what we've been called to, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel spoke of revenge. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of forgiveness and restoration of relationship. Now, this is what he's setting up to take us into verse 25. Mount Sinai, the judgment of God, the law of God, Mount Zion, the forgiveness of God, but yet also recognizing that we are responsible to him because, it's, because it says, verse 23, into the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So he does bring that judgment element to us when we will stand before him. Now let's start with verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, the gist of this passage and we will break it down because it's a little confusing, is that he's saying that everything of this earth can be shaken and will be shaken. But that which is of God cannot be shaken, will not be shaken. Now, if you look in this, verse, this passage of verse 29, because the author does something here a little unusual. He basically sums up everything with the 29th verse. For our God is a consuming fire. In other words, if you take everything that he said in verses 25 through verses 28 and just put it in a composite, it's that our God is a consuming fire. But what does it mean for God to be a consuming fire? Because if we get an idea of what that idea means and encapsulates, then that will enable us to understand the rest of the passage. Our God is a consuming fire. Well, first of all, it's in the present tense. Right now. Our God is a consuming fire. It is the idea that he is to be taken seriously and that sin will be judged. Now he says that our God is a consuming fire. The metaphor of fire is used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to represent several truths. First of all, fire is often used as a metaphor to speak of and represent the holiness of God. Think of fire. When you look at it, you can't reach out and touch it without getting burned. So what do most of us do? We look at it, but we do not touch it. You cannot control fire. You cannot handle fire. And the idea of God's holiness is that he cannot be controlled. He cannot be handled. He cannot be manipulated. Rather, we gaze upon his holiness with awe and wonder. The concept of fire in Scripture also speaks of his divine judgment. And it speaks of his divine judgment in two ways. First of all, his judgment is a purifying judgment. Fire purifies. If you want to purify something, 
then what do you do? You can place it in fire and in heat, and it purifies it. I remember my mother used to tell me when I was a kid all the time, when she went to pull splinters out of my hand, she would always strike a match and stick the needle into the match, and then she would stick the needle into my hand to try to get the splinter out. I always thought that was her way at first of trying to heat up the you know, the needle so she could burn my hand. I never could figure I got enough problems as it is now. I don't need you to burn my hand on top of everything. But it was that idea she used to say, this cleanses all the impurities out. So we're going to burn them away. Well, that's the idea of the fire of God in judgment. God brings his judgment on our lives. He brings his judgment on our church. He brings his judgment on a generation in order to bring purity to us. That is his first desire in judgment is to purify us. But second, the idea is that fire destroys. And so the idea of fire is that God being a consuming fire is that God does come in judgment to destroy sin. John 15 and verse 6 says that he will bring judgment upon all those who do not abide in him. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, they are thrown into the fire, and they are burned. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And what he's saying here when he says that God is our God is a consuming fire is that there is an aspect of who God is, His character, in His nature, that there is a place He brings us to of judgment, of accountability, and of discipline. It is God's desire in judgment to bring us to that place of discipline and accountability where we will get right with Him. But if we refuse to get right with Him, then there is judgment that is going to come, and He will bring that judgment, and there will be punishment, and accountability is part of that. Now, we live in a day and age, and we have in American Christianity probably for at least the last 25 to 30 years where we don't talk much about the judgment of God. We feel very uncomfortable about the judgment of God because it doesn't present God in terms that we like. We want to think of God constantly in terms exclusively of grace and mercy, which are, of course, huge parts of who He is, but we want to get rid of the judgment side of it and the accountability side of it completely. But when it says that our God is a consuming fire, God will hold us accountable and God will judge us. God will hold us as individuals accountable before him. And yes, if need be, he will bring his judgment and his discipline to our lives. God will hold his church accountable. And if we decide that we're going to tolerate sin and run in our own direction and do our own thing and blow off him, then he will bring judgment upon his church and God will bring judgment upon nations. And he has promised that. Our nation can turn its back on the Lord as it's done a pretty good job of for the last number of decades. But God is, will judge us. And may we not like it. We may not feel comfortable about it. But that's not the issue. The issue is that God will bring judgment. Now, how he does that and when he does that is up to him. And I do get a little nervous about trying to tread into waters of deciding, well, this is the judgment of God and that's the judgment of God. God will judge, though, and that is what he's promising here. And yes, we need to fear the judgment of God. We need to fear the judgment of God because his judgment does act as a corrective in our lives. Now, fire is seen on the cross when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fire of God's judgment fell on his son on the cross as Jesus was dying 
as he took on our sin. And that's why Jesus cried out to the Father, Why have you forsaken me? Because that aspect of judgment in that particular case as God looked upon his son, literally submerged in our sin, was that God had to forsake and to walk away from his son and to turn and to pour his judgment for our sin on his son. But fire is not always the judgment context. Because it also says of Jesus that when he comes, he will baptize in the spirit and in fire. So the idea of our God being a consuming fire is, yes, there is the aspect of him as the judge. There is the aspect of accountability. But there is also the aspect of God coming as our judge that he comes with this consuming fire of the Holy Spirit. It is his first desire and his utmost desire to place the fire of the Holy Spirit in us. Why? For two reasons. First off, the fire of the Holy Spirit in us purifies us from sin. It creates within us a love and a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that, the fire of the Spirit sets us on fire to serve the Lord. You see, God is not just interested in judging His church. The reason He judges is not for punishment's sake. The reason He judges is to purify us, cleanse us, and open us so that we will receive the empowerment and the fire of God in us in the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the idea of the consuming fire of God. That is His ultimate desire is to place a passion in us and a question I've asked myself this year as we tend to go through one shaking after another is what is God trying to say to his church? What is God trying to say to our generation? And I think that one of the things that God is trying to say to us is that I want to place the fire of my spirit in you. For too long we have been too satisfied with being warm for Jesus and not being on fire for Jesus. For having a love for Jesus that is sort of, you know, out there and okay, but not one that is intense and it is passionate for him where he is our top priority. And so he takes us through these times of judgment so that he can be the consuming fire in our lives. Now, notice verse 25. God shakes us to get our attention. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That is, don't refuse the Lord for he's speaking. Now, he's speaking to the nation of Israel way back in Israel's history. For they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now what he's speaking of there again is that when God came to his people in the book of Exodus and he gave them the Ten Commandments, the people gathered around Mount Sinai and they heard the trumpet sound that got louder and louder. They saw the power of God in display in lightning and in thunder and in smoke and they heard the voice of God and God said these are these Ten Commandments. You're to listen to me, you're to respect me, you're to obey these commandments, and if you do, I will bless you, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And the nation of Israel walked away from that mountain, and in the years to come, they basically blew God off. So what the writer here is saying is, if the nation of Israel endured judgment, and if you read so much of the New Old Testament, rather, 
It is the story of the judgment of God on his people for blowing off what he said to them. He's given an argument here from what's called the lesser to the greater. And what he's essentially saying here is this. If they listen and receive the Ten Commandments, if they had that encounter with the greatness of God at Mount Sinai, and they blew it off, and they walked away, and they endured judgment, think how much greater the judgment is going to be now, because God, the second time around, didn't offer a group of commandments. He offered His Son. And so if we reject His Son and blow off His Son and walk away from His Son, He is saying the judgment is going to be even greater. Because this time, the rejection is not just a group of instructions. It is literally the Son of God and His work on the cross and in the resurrection that we're blowing off. Now, He says that God is going to shake again. First of all, there was that shaking at Mount Sinai. But he says in verse 26, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but he's also going to shake the heavens. Verse 27, This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So what God says he's going to do is that he's going to shake, and he's going to shake in such a way that everything that's of this earth is going to basically sooner or later be destroyed. He will shake it till it is no more for a purpose that what's left, which is of him, his kingdom, cannot be shaken. The shaker cannot be shaken. You say that again, the shaker cannot be shaken. And God is in the process of shaking everything that is not of him to collapse it so that what is left is only of him. Now this process is outlined in the verse that Johnny read earlier, prophesied in Hebrew, excuse me, Haggai chapter 2 and verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. God says, I'm going to shake it all. How is he going to do that? How is he doing that? Think with me closely through this. Sermon outline in your bulletin. The second shaking, first shaking was at Mount Zion, Mount Sinai, rather, giving God's work, God's Ten Commandments, countering the Lord there. The second shaking that Haggai is speaking of here began with the preaching, teaching, and personal ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think about how Jesus began to shake things up. Do you remember when Jesus walked into the temple? He saw the corruption in the temple. And he began to call it out. He began to challenge it. On one occasion, he walked through the temple literally turning over the tables that were in the temple. He was shaking up the religious system of his day because of the corruption that was in it. He shook up Satan. Every time Jesus walked up to people that were in demonic bondage. He would walk up to them. He would cast out the demons. He would set them in their right mind. He would restore them. And he was shaking up Satan's kingdom 
and the bondage that Satan had put people in. He did the same thing with sickness and illness as he healed people. The resurrection, the morning of the resurrection, it says that the garden began to shake with an earthquake. What did that earthquake speak of? It was more than just the moving of the ground. God was shaking the garden. He was shaking the grave. And the reason he was shaking it up is because the resurrection of Jesus Christ shook the grave, it shook death, it shook hell, it shook Satan, it shook everything when he walked out of there victorious. He shakes Satan's kingdom every time the gospel is proclaimed. Satan knows that he does not stand on solid ground. And God's shaking will culminate in the judgments of the book of Daniel and Revelation. Where it says that the earth and heaven will flee away and a new heaven and a new earth will replace it. You see, when he says that he is going to shake, we have been in a shaking period ever since the Lord Jesus came to this earth. His ministry was about shaking the powers of Satan. His ministry ever since then has been about shaking the powers of Satan and shaking everything down till you just have the work of the kingdom of God. Do you remember over in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit came? What does it say? It says the place where they were sitting was what? Was shaken. God shook it to say, I'm doing a new work. I am present. The power of my Holy Spirit is at work. That's why I'm shaking it up. Everywhere the Lord goes, He shakes the place up. And the reason I emphasize this is because so often the church cowers in its building and cowers to ourselves because we're so scared that we're going to be shaken by Satan. And the reality is that Satan is shaking in his boots because he knows if the church ever begins to live and to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit, then Jesus will confront the powers of darkness and he will shake them until they are effective no more. We need not wait for the attack of Satan upon us. We need to be aggressive in attacking the strongholds of Satan and seeing them shaken. Now, God's word, work cannot be shaken. Notice what he says, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That is the rule and the reign of God. Let us be grateful that we are receiving God's rule, God's reign, God's leadership in our lives because that cannot be shaken. How do we respond to what God is doing in this shaking? Well, first of all, he says, be grateful. We're watching almost daily right now the powers of this world be shaken. And he says, be thankful that the kingdom of God is not shaken. Folks, if we've learned one thing in 2020 is how much in our lives that we thought was stable is unstable. How much have we thought that things that just had a continuum do not have a continuum? But one lesson we're also learning in 2020 is that the kingdom of God is not shaken. God's rule is not shaken. Nothing catches him by surprise. And he lives that and demonstrates that out. So what do we do? Verse 28, he says, let us offer. Now, I'm going to hit some of these key words in verse 28, and I want you to follow closely with me as we go through them. He says, let us offer acceptable worship. And this is so key. Let us offer acceptable worship. The word 
translated offer there is a Greek word that means to be a servant and to give service. So what he's saying, first of all, is how do we respond to what God is doing? We come as a servant to him. We come to offer service to him. So I say, Lord, in light of the fact that you are shaking the Lord, in light of the fact that you are king, in light of the fact that you have a kingdom, Lord, that is not going to be shaken, you are king of kings and lord of lords, I come to you, and the way I relate to you, the way I present myself to you, is as a servant ready to serve you however you want me to serve you. Now, verse 28, he says, let us offer acceptable worship. Notice the plural there, let us do it. We're going to do this together. It's not just the idea of us as individuals separated from each other. Together, we are doing this. Let's offer what acceptable worship. Now, I want you to follow really closely what I'm about to say, okay? Because when you and I think of worship, what do we think about? We think about sitting in a room like this on a Sunday morning, singing hymns or worship choruses with a band, and we talk, we think, well, was my worship acceptable to God today? Did I sing right? Did I sing well? Did I sing long enough? Did I like the music? Yada, yada, yada. That is not the concept here of acceptable worship, all right? So you can just dismiss that off because that is not what he's talking about when he says, let us offer acceptable worship. Now, I'm going to get up in your business for a minute, okay? So endure me. Acceptable worship is not how well we pull it off in this room on Sunday morning. That is easy compared to where he's taking us, okay? If the only thing I had to worry about in my worship was how well I did Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, that would be really easy, okay? It wouldn't be easy when it comes to holding a tune and singing, but it would be easy just in the sense of going through the process. But that's not what he's talking about here. The idea of acceptable worship is how... Do I live my life outside of this room, outside of 11 o'clock on Sunday morning? You see, my life and how I live my life is an act of worship to God. Who I am as a husband to my wife is an act of worship. Who I am as a father to my son is is an act of worship. Who I am to other people is an act of worship. How I handle my finances is an act of worship. My thought life and what I allow to be in my thoughts is an act of worship. And on and on it goes. I don't have time to get into it this morning, so I'm going to challenge you to do it this afternoon or this week. But this passage ends and goes into the 13th chapter of Hebrews. And the 13th chapter of Hebrews is all about how we are supposed to live. That's the act of worship. He begins by, let brotherly love continue. Do not elect to show hospitality to strangers. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. He talks about marriage. I mean, he didn't leave a stone unturned because what he's doing in the 13th chapter, he says, I just told you to offer acceptable worship. Well, in the 13th chapter, I'm going to tell you what acceptable worship looks like and sounds like and acts like. The way I live is acceptable worship. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
So taking my body and presenting it to the Lord and saying, Lord, my body, what I think, what I say, what I do is totally at your disposal. That is an act of worship, and that is acceptable worship. Do you see how much bigger the concept of worship is than what we pull off in here on Sunday morning? What we do in here is the easy thing. When we walk out the door, that's where the hard stuff starts. But that's where the acceptable worship starts. Now, follow me on this, verse 28. He says, offer the acceptable worship with reverence and all. We're going to look at these two words quickly. First of all, he says, do it with reverence. The word reverence means to see the excellence in something, to see the value of something. In other words, when I offer my worship to God and the way I live, I look at Jesus and I look into Jesus and I see and I experience his incredible value. I see and experience His excellence. And my worship of my life is in response and in an engagement of the value and excellence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, worship with reverence and with all. Now, the word translated all there is a fascinating word. It means caution. In other words, worship cautiously. It means to watch for something. When I worship Him, I do it cautiously because I realize how important it is, how serious it is. How the offering of my life to Him, how important that is, how serious that is. I watch for Him. Where is He in my life? What is He saying to me? How does He show up in my life today? I'm watching for Him. And the final concept in this word is to await quietly. To await quietly. Think about the people that you wait for quietly. They are important people. And when they show up, you await quietly because we're listening to what they've got to say. When it says here that we worship Him with all, we are waiting quietly to listen to what Jesus has to say. One of the mistakes sometimes we make in worship is that we rush to make noise to fill up silence. And God is saying, I wish you would sit in silence to await to hear me. You see, sometimes what we call worship never gives God time to say anything to us. This idea of worshiping Him in all is that I await quietly to hear what He has to say. Now let me give you a hint. When you wait quietly on God, He will always speak. But he will speak in two ways. Sometimes he will speak specific things to us. His word is 66 books of specifics. Everybody, people, some people say, you got a word, Lord got a word for you. I said, I already got 66 books of word. I'm still trying to figure out. He will speak. He has spoken. But often when God speaks... He does so with his presence. I'm looking for a specific message, and he's giving me 
a specific person himself. You see, when a parent sits down with a child, the parent doesn't always need to speak by just talk, 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 talk. Often when a parent sits down with a child and wants to communicate with the child, what does the parent do? Just spends time with the child. When I was raising my son and I wanted to communicate love to him, a lot of times what we did is just grab fishing poles and go find a pond. It wasn't about me saying specific things to Jonathan. It was about spending time with him. And what God is often saying to us is that I don't necessarily every day have a specific message other than my word, which is big time important, but I just want to spend time with you. I just want to spend time with you and communicate with you through my presence. Reverence. I see his excellence and his value and all. I watch for him. I await quietly for him. And as I do that, I'm going to see and experience him, yes, as judge, as my redeemer, deliverer, as my savior, and his holiness. A, a lot of what, as we've moved through these two chapters over the last few months, we've come back over and over and over again to the holiness of God. And I've done the best I've known how to do to explain to you verbally what the holiness of God is. But let me tell you, folks, one of the most frustrating aspects of preaching is that I can talk about holiness and majesty and the wonder of Jesus till I turn blue in the face, but no amount of verbiage and definition takes the place of the experience of Him. And I can't do that with verbs and paragraphs of, of verbiage coming out of my mouth. You just have to, to get alone with Jesus. And you just have to say to Him, Lord, I've heard the definitions. And I've heard the pastor talk about all of it. But I need to experience this for myself. I need to know what holiness is. Not just in words, but inside. I need to know what your majesty is. I need to know what it is to be held in the palm of your hand so that everything around me may be shaking, but I am not shaken because I am held by the one who cannot be shaken. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this day that you hold us. And God, we live in a time when we very often feel like things are shaking. And you promised that you would bring us shaking. But Jesus, you have been shaking ever since you were born in Bethlehem, confronting the powers of darkness confronting disease, confronting death. In your resurrection, you shook it all up. And Jesus, we ask that you would help us to respond to you in worship. In worship, Lord, that is acceptable. Not just what we do in this room, but Lord, in the way we live our lives, that God, as we walk out of here in a few moments, that God, we will live our lives in such a way that it's acceptable worship. Worship Jesus that sees your excellence and your value. And worship Jesus that looks upon you in all that you are and waits quietly for you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you are listening to me through any of our media platforms, radio or Facebook, etc., you're here in this room, I want to invite you, if you've never asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, this day, just to pray a simple prayer to him and say, Lord Jesus, 
I want to know you, and I want to follow you. Jesus, forgive me of sin. And Jesus, teach me how to walk with you. And now, let us join together in praise and worship of our Lord. Stand together and sing.